things aren't always the way we wish they were, are they? I wonder if you could identify with any one of these scenarios today. Living in a constant state of limbo as you feel stuck in a house that's hard to sell. Suffering from a sickness that the doctors can't clearly diagnose and therefore properly treat. Resisting a temptation that you thought you were done with. But year after year, it just seems to rear its ugly head at you once again. Managing a business that really never seems to make it off the ground. It never seems to look all that different in the profit margin, no matter how much you market the company. Running a struggling school where keeping good teachers is just as hard as finding them. Eagerly trying to make new friends but realizing how difficult it is to connect with others. You find that lasting friendships take a lot of effort and time to make. It's this start and stop type of experience that we're all going to encounter in this life, where life can feel like an annual bumper car ride. Who likes bumper cars in here? You get in your bumper car ride and you try to go left and Wham! You hit a car. Then you decide to go right, and wham! You hit another car. You start thinking, okay, all right, I get it. I'm going to go in reverse this time and avoid the cars altogether. You pull it back, and wham! You hit the wall. You see, sometimes this bumper car type of life, it can make us feel stuck, make us sometimes feel like we are in limbo between one chapter of our life and the next. And it's in these situations and in these circumstances that we feel stuck, that it makes us think, or at least it should. It should cause us to think carefully about how we're living our life, what we are hoping in, what we are most eagerly anticipating to happen for us. But it's moments in life like these where we're pushed outside of our comfort zone. We're pushed outside of what's familiar to us, where we become much more aware of our need for help and strength. We suddenly realize that we are much weaker than we thought we learn that we are not as wise and certain about life as we thought we were. Indeed, we can even find and discover that we are actually more sinful and immature than we are as we navigate new territories, new bumper car situations that God puts in our life. You know, when you are living in this type of start-and-stop reality, It's inevitable that our sense of time gets adjusted too, doesn't it? The timetable we've had in our minds for all the things we want to happen for us gets canceled or indefinitely delayed. It's these painful but priceless moments in our lives where we receive the heavenly gift of patience unknowingly, and usually unwillingly, 
we get enrolled as a student into the university of waiting, God's rigorous school of waiting. That's why in life we can not only feel stuck or in limbo, but we can also experience severe disappointments too, especially disappointment in things that we've waited upon and we've hoped for, maybe for a long period of time. Some of us are longing to be married, but there is no sign of wearing a wedding ring anytime soon. Some of us are longing to have a child or grandchildren, but there is the difficult reality of accepting. It may not happen. Some of us are waiting for a spiritually immature spouse to grow up or a wayward child to turn to the Lord. But you don't see any spiritual fruit or any evidence that God is listening to your prayers. Some of us are waiting for a new job. But we look in the mailbox and in the inbox and it, we don't see any job offers coming. Some of us are waiting to be healed from some type of pain or ailment, a prolonged illness, a lingering injury, maybe just the humbling reality of an aging body or a forgetful mind. And then there's some of us who are trying to adapt to a new normal as a sweet and dear chapter of your life has recently ended. You leave a church that once meant so much to you. A beloved coach or boss of yours retires from their leadership role. A close friend moves a long way from you. A loved one taking their last breath and you realize you won't see them again at least not in this life. In his book, The Story of Everything, author Jared Wilson describes how saying goodbye to loved ones, facing death, is a reminder for him and really for us too that things aren't always the way we wish they were. He writes, I don't particularly enjoy preaching funeral services. But I've had the great privilege of losing track of how many I've preached over the last six years. I preach as many as I can, because there is almost no other situation where unbelievers may be gathered at a time when they are uncharacteristically focused on matters of life or death. And the opportunity for gospel ministry is great. But even if the gospel doesn't resonate... Identifying the problem the gospel addresses does. Funerals remind everybody that this world is not as it should be. People sitting in uncomfortable pews grappling with the disruption of death understand that, even if just for those brief moments. Well, for those of us who are Christians here today, we know what it's like to have our hopes deferred and our heart's desires fulfilled all at the same time. We know as Christians that we can find ourselves living in this already but not yet kingdom reality of the Christian life. For example, we are saved from our sins by God's grace, but we still face the reality of our own unsanctified sinful desires 
that we need to confess and repent of every day. In Christ, we know our citizenship is ultimately in heaven. But we are called to live as ambassadors for Christ here on earth as citizens of Fort Smith. We know that in Christ, we have great rewards that will never perish laid up in heaven for us. But in this life, suffering and loss will accompany each one of us the longer we live here. By faith, we are promised eternal life with Christ. But we are still called to live in this suffering, saturated world where we grieve and we groan in our tent-like bodies. And as we do this, by God's power, through His Spirit, holding us up until the Lord calls us away from this body and calls us to be at home with Him. We know that one day, and that day's coming, God will make everything new and right. But until then, we are called to wait eagerly and patiently on the Lord's timing when he promises to return for his church. So in this bumper car type of life that we face, what is your hope in your lowest moments of distress? When you are in limbo and you come face to face with your own weakness, your own mortality, your own sinfulness, what are you hoping in for deliverance? Friends, how do we stay hopeful in this fallen world until we are finally at home with the Lord? That's a good question for all of us to consider today. If you have a copy of God's Word, open your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 298, Psalm 130. Again, if you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible that's sitting in front of you in the chair as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If you're taking notes, here are the main points for the sermon. Number one, abandon self-reliance and call upon the Lord for help. Abandon self-reliance 
and call upon the Lord for help. That's verses 1 to 4. Point number two, abandon false promises and wait upon the Lord for hope. Abandon false promises and wait upon the Lord for hope. If this is your first time with us, we are in the fifth psalm in the month of January as we are tying up a little mini-series called Resolved. Uh, Just for review, and if you haven't been any of these sermons this month, you can listen to them on our church podcast, but just so you are reminded of what we've covered in the month of January, we looked at Psalm 27, Resolved, I will seek the Lord all my days. Psalm 1, Resolved, I will meditate on God's word. Psalm 101, Resolved, I will live a life of integrity. And then last week, we looked at Psalm 32, I will confess my sins to the Lord. Today in Psalm 130, we're going to end this little series called Resolved. I will wait upon the Lord. Uh, This psalm is found in a collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascents. You can see that in the heading. Look it down in your Bibles. Above verse 1, it says the Songs of Ascents. These are a collection of psalms that stretch from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and they were most likely psalms that the people of Israel would have sung and encouraged one another with as they made their three annual journeys to Jerusalem for their most well-known feast days. Uh, Those feasts would have included the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Uh, You can read more about those feasts on your own time in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, and Deuteronomy chapter 16. Uh, These annual pilgrimages would would have included a large range and wide varieties of distances for the people to travel. Uh, Some may have gotten there in just a half a day. Uh, Some it could have taken much longer. If you look in the very first psalm of the Song of Ascents in Psalm 120, some of these people lived in foreign territories where God's enemies dwelled. Among these songs of ascents, there are references uh, to danger that God's people were afraid of, uh, but also of God's promises to protect them, uh, to keep them, to watch over them day and night as they made their way all the way to Jerusalem. But these psalms also have expressions of joy. Have you ever had one of those moments before a big football game or basketball game or any type of an event where they're tailgating outside and finally the tickets, uh, the ticket line gets opened up and there's this stampede of excitement? Well, there was even that going on amongst the people of Israel as they made their trek to Jerusalem because they were excited when they were able to get together those three times of, year, of the year at least to remember God's faithfulness and to remember how he had provided for them throughout the year. If you would, go turn back to Psalm 122. I just want you to see the type of excitement, the type of anticipation, the type of longing they would have had on this trip. Psalm 122. We read in Psalm 122, a song of ascents of David. I was glad. When they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So go ahead and turn back to Psalm 130. You can see it's exciting. There's eagerness. There's a unifying gladness to approach the house of God. Now, but amidst these psalms or songs of ascents, there's also at least one penitential psalm or one psalm that we learned about last week, psalms that express sorrow, confession of sin, and our need for God's mercy. Last week, it was Psalm 32 that's much more well-known to us. But did you know that Psalm 130 that we're looking at today is also in the seven penitential psalms of the Psalter? It's going to have a similar flavor to last week's sermon, but there's a slight alteration to it. The question we're going to ask ourselves this morning is this, what does confessing and acknowledging our sin have anything to do with our waiting upon the Lord? Coming to grips with how sinful we are and an eager anticipation on the Lord. Well, let's study Psalm 130 and find out. Look with me and starting in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The beginning of the psalm starts with a cry of desperation. That's pretty clear from verse 1, right? You don't have to be a scholar to figure that out. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Notice how the psalmist does not begin with a shout of praise, but with a cry for help. He doesn't begin with an anticipation of excitement, like we saw in Psalm 122. Rather, it begins with the groanings of someone's soul. The groanings from the depths of a person's soul that sometimes words cannot fully express. Have you ever been hurting so badly inside that it's difficult to make coherent words come out? The more you speak about whatever it is is causing you pain, the more you can't wrap your arms around what you're feeling and what you're trying to say. Well, if that's you, you don't have to be embarrassed. Your friends and your family, your counselor, your doctor, even your pastor may not fully understand what you're trying to say. They may not understand what you are going through. But God does. He knows. 
and he cares. In verse 2, you'll notice the psalmist is hurting, but he isn't halting in his prayers to God. He's not quitting. He's not giving the spiritual eye roll. Oh, yeah, I know I should pray. No, he's continually going to the Lord, even when it's painful, even when it's hard, even when he couldn't muster up coherent words to other human beings. He says, oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, depending on your translation, it could also say my cry for help, my supplications, or the sound of my pleadings. Uh, Either way, this is a continual display of what it means to rely upon God. To rely upon God. Even when you're at one of the lowest moments of your life. Did you pay attention to that one word in verse 1? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The depths. The deep. The lowest of the low. What's the lowest you've ever felt in your life? Being fired from a job? Experiencing a divorce? Having a parent disown you or say they want nothing to do with you? Getting diagnosed with cancer? Losing a loved one in death? Betrayed and lied to by someone you trusted? Getting caught living in sin when a brother or sister calls you out? Maybe something very specific comes to your mind this morning. Even the thought of it makes you nervous and nauseous. It's the one place in your past that you never want to repeat. It's that one place you don't want to even talk about with people who know you the best, even all the way to today. Let me ask you, when you are at your lowest moments in your life, is God the first person you call? When you are at the lowest, the deep, the depth, who is it that you are calling and crying out to for help? When you're at the end of your rope, the bottom of the well, on the verge of tapping out, Beloved, do you find yourself running to God or running away from him? Running away to a substance like alcohol or drugs or even self-harm. Running away to some type of mental escape like gambling, excessive spending, or pornography. Let's get even more contextual in our modern day. Binge-watching mindless television shows and movies. Running away to some type of ungodly relationship and doing things with them to numb the pain. Things you know that God does not approve of. Beloved, is God the very anchor in the storm for you? 
Or is he simply an afterthought? Is he the lifesaver that you just kind of stumble across when all the other saviors in your life don't work out? You see, the poetic imagery here in Psalm 130 is one of being tossed around in the sea or in a river where the violent rivers or the waters are beginning to overwhelm you. They're beginning to seep up over your mouth. They're beginning to threaten you and even drown you. The psalmist here knows he's in trouble. But he recognizes that God is his only hope. You see, we are most dependent on God when we believe that only God can deliver us. We are most dependent on God when we believe that only God can deliver us. Brothers and sisters, that's one of the reasons why I am a huge advocate of being patient towards throwing people into baptism waters. Evangelize, pray, and teach, but be patient and let them wrestle with God. Let them agonize over their sin and their sorrow and cry out to God till he saves them. You want your children and grandchildren not to be ushered into the gates of hell, falsely assuring them just because grandma or grandpa said they were a-okay. You want to bring the good news to them, but you want to see people come to the end of their rope and see that God is all they got. Beloved, we are most focused on God when we are lying on our backs in desperation. That happens from the first day you get born again, and it's going to happen on the last hour of your life. God is all we got from start to finish. And for those dear saints in here who've been following Jesus decade after decade, you have whole bookshelves of stories to tell other believers that the safest place you can be is on your back looking to him. Some of life's most painful lessons are the very things that are the best for our soul. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Listen, if you're drowning in the depths this morning, whatever those depths are, however low you are feeling, God's presence will meet you there. In fact, God won't simply meet you there. He's already there when you arrive. Isn't that what David said so beautifully in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, God's all-encompassing presence is what brings the believer great comfort. 
but it's also God's encompassing presence that strips us of any notion that we can hide in our sin. That we can somehow cover up the blemishes of our life from God. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Here the psalmist finally tells us what exactly was bringing him at such a low place in his life. The pain, the sorrow, the drowning-like experience, if you will. He mentions right there in verse 3, iniquities. As we learned last week, iniquities is just one of the most common Hebrew words for the badness of sin, the perversity of sin. Kids, you might be asking, what is sin? Pastor Blake brings it up a lot. Let me remind you of an easy way. It's the stuff inside our hearts we don't want mom and dad to see. It's the things we've done in our past that we wish we could erase. It's the words we have spoken or written or typed that show vitriol, hatred, gossip, envy, jealousy, and lust towards others who are made in God's image. Uh, Iniquity is all the ways we have lived our life that do not honor the Lord. And they only bring regret and destruction to our life. Well, like any sound theologian, the psalmist here has a really good grasp on the doctrine of human depravity. He says, O Lord, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Kids, you didn't know I was going to be talking to you a lot in this service. I never want you to think that I'm not listening or watching you in this service. I am. Kids, have you ever had those moments where your parents tell you, I need you to clean your room. I'm going to give you 20 minutes to do it. And then you get done in about 12 minutes. Your parents are amazed that you did it so quickly. Then they said, hey, I'm coming in to check it. You sure you want to, don't want to go back and check it out one more time? No, I got it, mom. I got it, dad. Mom and dad goes in there, their shoes under the bed, clothes crammed, wrinkled, all in one drawer, old food that you didn't need it the other day at lunch because you didn't like what your parents packed you. So, <laughs> and mom and dad come in the room. They know where you hide it because they probably did it when they were a kid too. Brothers and sisters, God knows the rooms of our life better than any mom or dad could. If the Lord white glove test and walked through the rooms of our life, investigated, thoroughly examined, and brought to light everything we have done, that does not please his holy presence, who on earth could endure a test like that? 
Who could even bear that kind of exposure? Who could come to grips with their own wicked heart better than any 3D or high-definition television? If we saw God in all his glory and he was not merciful to restrain us from burning into dust, we would all say with Isaiah, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Listen, I'd encourage you in 2021, I know you have Bible reading plans that you're probably engaged in, or maybe you got to Leviticus and you quit, but... If you want to add something to that tool belt, I want to encourage each one of you to study the doctrine of human depravity, the sinfulness of sin. Because some of you struggle deeply with the doctrines of election and predestination, and it's because you've never been taught. Bad teachers that are faithless, that do not open their Bibles have left some of you barren in your soul. And I want to help you study the wickedness of our sin and you will glory in the grace of your Savior. There is nothing intimidating about God's sovereignty in election and predestination when you realize all we deserve is an eternal lake of fire. The only thing we deserve is judgment. The only thing we deserve is for the angelic hosts to be surrounded by the Lord of hosts looking over our tormenting bodies in hell and saying, God is right. When you understand how sinful you are, the domino will get knocked over and all these other things will make a whole lot more sense. I hope some preachers in this town listen to that last statement. You see, here in Psalm 130, the psalmist does not try to buck against how sinful he is and how sinful everyone else is, but he doesn't leave them there. He also shows us the depth of God's mercy. Look what he says in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What is God's mercy? It's his kind and compassionate care to weak and wretched sinners like us. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Instead of dangling over the pit of hell, he gives you the key to his kingdom. Our Heavenly Father says you can come to my throne anytime you want because you belong to me. That's mercy. It's not how well you can clean yourself up. It's not how well you can hide your sin. Every single person who will ever be in heaven will only be there because of the mercy of God. If we're wearing t-shirts, it'll say loved and forgiven, and that's about it. Because that's what we are. In Christ, we are loved 
and we are forgiven. And that's just such a crucial point for us to come to grips with this morning. You and I cannot savor and celebrate the mercy of God when we sing these songs if we do not first grapple with the depth of our sin. You see, when you have a right view of your sin, it will make you run to God for his mercy. But if you have a warped view of your own goodness, it will make you prideful. You'll compare yourself to other people. You'll size yourself up against them. And you'll treat God's mercy like yesterday's trash. You remember that parable that Jesus taught about humility and saving faith in Luke 18? Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, he also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, this parable on humility, was taught by the one who truly humbled himself. The one who left glory to live among men who were stained with iniquity and sin. One who would stoop so low and become a man. Take on human flesh in the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The God-man. Christ Jesus. Towards the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus would face one of the lowest moments of his life. Jesus was in the depths and in the deep in a way that Psalm 130 could never poetically describe. Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane was at a depth of sorrow and distress than any human soul could fathom. The agony that Christ's soul felt as he contemplated the wrath of God towards sinners caused his entire being to tremble. In one of Jesus' lowest moments, he told his disciples to watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And then Jesus got down on his face. And it says in the Gospels, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, when Christ went to the cross to die at Calvary, 
He drank the cup of God's righteous wrath for sinners like you and me that we might enjoy God's endless mercy in Christ. Puritan John Flavel once said, Oh, the unspeakable effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. It extends to all sins, past, present, without exception, and all sins to come. God did not spare his own son. Sparing mercy was denied to Christ. Not a moment of time was lessened for the suffering and wrath that was appointed for him. Justice will not bend in the least. What a sad case for your soul, O reader, if you have no interest in this sacrifice. Consider how you can support the infinite wrath that Christ bore in the place of God's elect. Woe and alas forevermore to that man who meets a just God without a mediator. I beseech you by the mercies of God in the light of all the love you have for your own soul, do not neglect this opportunity. Get interest in this sacrifice quickly. What will your state be when your vast eternity opens to swallow you up? Happy is that man who can say in a dying hour, this is my comfort. Forgiven. Remember, no sin can stand before the effectiveness of his blood. If you're feeling discouraged today by your own sin, for every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at your sorrow, take ten looks at God's mercy to you. For every one look at your regrets, remember that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Cling to Christ. Look to Christ. He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he calls all sinners who feel the sorrow and depth of their sin and says, let me clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. I forgive you if you come to me by faith. Believe upon him. Trust in him. That is good news. For where our sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Abandon self-reliance and call upon the Lord for help. Point number two, abandon false promises and wait upon the Lord for hope. Abandon false promises and wait upon the Lord for hope. After the psalmist receives God's mercy towards his sin, what does it propel him to do? Well, God's forgiveness propels him to wait patiently upon the Lord and to put his hope in what God had promised. Look at verses 5 to 8. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Did you notice twice in this second half of the psalm, the psalmist mentions the hope there is available if you rely upon God? He mentions that there in verse 5 from a personal standpoint. He says, in his word, 
I hope. And then he instructs the people of Israel corporately as a main kind of gathering emphasis. In verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. This psalm began with a cry of desperation. When you feel the weight of your sin and the weight of living in a fallen world, it will bring all of us to a very low place. But because of God's mercy and forgiveness, the psalmist's whole attitude begins to change. He goes from sounding helpless to sounding hopeful. You know, we use words like that all the time, hope. Hope. What does that even mean? Well, some people view it as wishful thinking. Like Razorback fans think about their Razorbacks next year. Thinking they're going to win the NCAA National Football Championship. Brothers and sisters, that's not hope. That's wishful thinking. (laughs) It's not based off anything that's factual. They stink. Every year it's the same thing with a different coach. You can hope in it, but that's wishful thinking. No, the hope according to the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's not roll the dice and let's just see where it lies. No, hope is confident expectation. It's faith and hope that is based on facts, not fiction. A faith rooted in something that's true and always trustworthy. When you put your faith and hope in something, you really get to find out if it's actually worth putting your faith in when it's put through a difficult time. Not only just a difficult time, but over the long haul. Brothers and sisters, you and I are tempted, including me, I'm putting myself on the front of the ship on this one, we are tempted every week to think God exists for us. Every week, we wake up, God, what can you do for me? God, what can you do for me? God, how you can get me out of this? God, how you can make my life look better? But see, brothers and sisters, I want us to repent together and help one another together be reminded that really a seven-day week is a seven-day platform for God to show off who he is. Every week's a new week for God to show off a fireworks display of his mercy, of his faithfulness, of his truth, of his power, of his patience, as we see his word prove true again and again and again. That's why God put us on earth. That's why he drew us by his spirit to Jesus Christ, to show off his glory, to show off his power, to show off his love and his mercy to sinners like us. And listen, as we looked at in the last several weeks, he gave us this book. He gave us the scriptures so that we might put our faith and hope in something that will always stand the test of time. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words, Jesus said, will never pass away. That's why the psalmist here says he can rely upon the Lord. And he can rely upon his word 
That's where his hope is. Not in wishful thinking. Not in shaking up magic eight balls. Not rolling the dice. Not looking up the weekly horoscope. He's putting his hope in what God has said. Those of you who are a generation or two behind me, you probably remember those days when you were a child or maybe in your young adult years where you could go buy something at a store. And if you forgot your money, you could tell the person at the cash register, hey, can I just pay you back tomorrow? Yeah, Bill, no problem. You know why? Because there was a generation where people had a charitable mercy that a person is as good as their word. Brothers and sisters, God puts his name on his word. God never, ever lies to us. What he says he will do, he promises to do. That's why he uses the image of here of a watchman. Did you notice that in verse 6? A watchman. In verse 6, it's the picture of a soldier sitting up in a tower late at night, watching over the citadel in the land to make sure no intruders would come in. They ate the late night shift, for those of you who worked that, in the hospitals. They had to stay awake. They had to stay alert. They had to be on guard. But every watchman knew, morning's coming. Morning's coming. That sun will shine very bright, and then his shift would be over. Brothers and sisters, that's the picture of what we are doing as we wait on Christ. We are to remain vigilant, alert, on guard, not being sleepy Christians who get caught up with the noise that this world gets so confused in. That's why every Lord's Day we come together and we sing songs about sin Grace and the resurrection. Because there's never a week that goes by that we don't need a dosage of all that. It shouldn't take funerals to remind us of that. But sometimes God has to use that to remind us of it. But brothers and sisters, I do want to expose two false promises that I think many immature Christians have believed that lead to false hopes that I want to expose this morning with the truth, and I hope it would liberate some of you from some of the anxiety and sorrow that you have in your heart. False promise number one. Living in America means Christians won't be marginalized or persecuted. Listen, religious freedom is a beautiful thing. God has been kind and merciful to this country to bless us for a long time with having religious freedom. But beloved, we cannot let the government or secular universities who threaten our religious freedom make us forget what Jesus promised would happen if we followed him. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, 20. Friends, Jesus does not promise a life free from persecution and free from slander and free 
from suffering as a Christian. Jesus promises a cross to carry, his spirit to give us boldness, and a promise to be with us. And beloved, that word alone is enough. That promise alone is what carried the Christians in the book of Acts. A cross to carry, a spirit to empower us, and the promise that God will be with us. Instead of cowering in fear of what our culture might do to churches, we should be watchful and pray. Paul said in Colossians 4, verses 2 and 4, this is a really good scripture memory for you and I to think about this week. Colossians 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. CCBC, if you haven't already yet, begin praying that God would fling open doors for the gospel that we can be a part of and pray that we would be a bold church. It's not just a preacher. It's every man and woman, every boy and girl who waves the banner of Jesus that God might fill us with courage and boldness this year to testify to his grace. False promise number two. If I have enough faith, God will give me all my heart's desires. If there has been any damage done by man-centered preaching and a crossless gospel message, it's the damage done by the so-called health and wealth prosperity gospel. The message that says something like this, above all, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And if you have enough faith, he's going to give it to you. But don't think I've left my Baptist churches off the hook. There's another subtle false belief that I think our Baptist churches have bought into, drank down, and were lied to. It's the illusion that God will bless you with what you want if you work hard and wait patiently for it. It's what I call the good old boy theology, the blue-collar Bible doctrine. It's thinking that the rule of reciprocity applies to our relationship with God. God, I'll work hard for you, and then you'll work hard for me. I'm going to blow that up right now. I work hard, try hard, pray hard, wait long, and God's going to reward me in the end. No. Friends, that's just another form of works-based theology, and it's wrong, and it's left some of you depressed, discouraged, and struggling to read your Bibles, and I want to liberate you from that false promise. Yes, working hard may result in good results. Read the book of Proverbs. You don't go to work, you get fired. If you're always late, you're going to get fined. That's called sanctified common sense. But working hard and being a good Christian does not mean you get everything your selfish heart desires. 
working hard and being a good Christian might actually mean this. Live by faith for decades and live with unfulfilled desires till the day you die. A faithful life called to singleness and celibacy. A faithful marriage unable to have biological children of their own. A hardworking but modest income that simply pays the bills and gives faithfully to a church. A faithful local church ministry that never gets a huge platform, never gets on TV, and never gets the applause of the world. If you want to just see the kind of point I'm trying to make, read Hebrews chapter 11. It's the hall of fame of faith. All these people, these men and women of old, are commended for their faith. But you know what the irony is of the passage? Many of them never saw the fruits of God's promise in their lifetime. Beloved, you today could be praying for people that will be saved after you're dead and gone. Today, you could be planting seeds for the gospel and not see a shred of fruit, but on the other side of glory, there's a harvest awaiting your faithfulness. So be very careful, all of us, from thinking, if I work hard for God, if I wait long enough, he's just going to watch out for me. Listen, if you got Jesus, he's already watched out for you. And that's always enough. It's always enough. If you're forgiven, that's enough. You see, Psalm 130, the waiting and hoping here is based off things God has promised. Not things we're just wishfully thinking, he said. I want you to notice it's also what's most important. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Back in verse 4, the psalmist found comfort in God's forgiveness. But here in verses 7 and 8, he encourages the whole people of Israel to hear what he's experienced in his heart. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, when the people of Israel made these annual trips to these feasts, these long trips together would have been a time for rejoicing and a time of remembrance. They would rejoice in all the ways that God did bless them and that he did prosper them during the agricultural harvest time. And they were also times to be reminded of God's faithfulness that he would preserve a people for himself. Salvation from their sins. You see, when these dear saints of old would behold the Day of Atonement, they would hear the story of the Exodus, of God delivering out of bondage and captivity to redeem a people for himself. They were being reminded that there is one greater than Moses who is still to come. There is one greater than David that will rule forever. There is a sacrifice that will perfectly atone for our iniquities. You see, brothers and sisters, the saints of Psalm 130 were looking forward to that day. But as Christians, we're looking back to it. We're looking back at the fulfillment of how Christ has paid the ransom for the sins of his people. But brothers and sisters, you want to know something really interesting? Though we are always looking back to the cross, 
if you do a little word study on weight in the New Testament, aside from a few times where Paul says, hey, don't be in a hurry, wait on me a little bit, apart from some of those scattered references, the most common usage that Paul or any writer gives to tell Christians to wait is on two basic things. Wait on Jesus' coming and wait for the new heavens and new earth. Wait on Jesus' coming and wait for the new heavens and new earth. Listen, if you come to know Christ, God promises you two things, forgiveness of your sins and eternal life with him. But you might say, well, pastor, pastor, I got it. Amen. But I still got to live here. I've got desires that I want. I've got needs that I want. I've got struggles that I need help with. Pastor, what do I take from Psalm 130? If until we get to that day, what do I do in the meantime? Pastor Blake, will my illness ever get healed? Watch and pray. Will I ever get married? Watch and pray. Will my son or daughter, my grandson or granddaughter ever come to know the Lord? Watch and pray. Will my husband or wife ever mature spiritually? Watch and pray. Will I ever get the job I've always wanted? Watch and pray. Will CCBC ever grow to have hundreds of members? Will CCBC ever have its own property and own land? Will CCBC ever have a church staff? Watch and pray. I don't know the answers to those questions because God didn't promise any of those in his word. But he did tell me to watch and pray. Watch and pray. Beloved, deep sorrows, severe disappointments, unfulfilled desires may stay with us for a lifetime as we follow Jesus. But one day, they will be immediately removed and replaced in the twinkling of an eye with lasting joy, endless hope, satisfied hearts when we leave this body and are finally at home with the Lord. Our faith will be made sight. We read of this promise of a day that is coming. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What do we do until that day? We abandon self-reliance and call upon the Lord for help. We abandon false promises and wait upon the Lord for hope. Does that describe your life today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you convict us of our sin. 
so that we treasure your mercy. Lord, we also thank you for putting us in long seasons of waiting, waiting even for good desires and good gifts. But in Christ, you've already given us what we least deserve and what is most important, and that is Christ. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people today as we sing this song in reflection in response to what we've heard. Lord, we pray that you might receive praise today, even for those who might be in the depths of sorrow. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.